We are In Conversation, a podcast from the School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University, designed to showcase timely and informative insights from leading faculty, researchers, and other experts which impact the ever-changing social world in which we live in. Here at the School of Social and Family Dynamics, we recognize that the land which we are hosting this conversation at Arizona State University belongs to the Maricopa and Pima peoples, and we are so privileged to welcome you to today's conversation. Welcome, welcome everyone. My name is Aubrey Hoffer, and I'm your graduate student host of In Conversation with the School of Social and Family Dynamics. My kingly guest today is my friend, the soon-to-be Dr. Kent Woods. Kent is an ASU alum from the start who got his bachelor's in family and human development and psychology right here at ASU. He then joined our graduate program where he has done some really great work examining academic tracking within schools. Currently, he's been applying his skills from grad school to serve the community, working with the local Kyrene School District as a data analysis intern. Kent, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. So the podcast starts and ends the same way. I'm going to ask you three sort of rapid fire questions. These introductory ones are just icebreakers to get to know you better on the surface level. And then the ending ones will get quick bites of your personal philosophy. The point is to just try to answer them quickly in about a sentence. How does that sound? Cool. It sounds great. All right. So my first question for you is, what is something that you hope to do in 2022? I hope to graduate and move on from graduate school. (laughs) I think that's a great goal. So my second question is, what is something that makes you happy? I love attending sporting events. So I have a few different local favorite sports teams I love to go see. Give me give me some shout outs. Who are your sports teams? Arizona Cardinals, even though they lost last night. (laughs) Well, we still support. So. All right. My third question is, what was your dream job when you were a kid? I always dreamt about being an architect. I was always excellent at calculus and math, and I enjoyed the creative type work. So I I always wanted to be an architect. That's awesome. Well, let's start to move into our conversation a little bit. I was hoping that we could start off by you telling me a little bit about your life, but in the context of education, because so much of your work is rooted in understanding education and helping to improve education for youth. So what was school like for you when you were a kid? Did you just always love going to school and was college just the natural step for you? No, I was an awful student. I I was not a very good student at all. I was the kind of student where um, I was really a B-level student, but I didn't study and I didn't have a lot of good habits in place to be an effective student. And I looked at that and went, okay, you know what? I'm a B-level student who scores very highly on achievement tests. You know, if I put in the work and really, you know, push myself, I can be better. So, you know what? I worked hard. Um, pushed myself to get better throughout high school and I became a much better student. And, you know, so yeah, that's, that was my journey through education, at least as an elementary and high school student. So then when you got to college, what got you interested in psychology? I always have an interest in philosophy and I think there's some sort of crossover in theory between um, psychology and um, philosophy And so I always liked different theories of psychology and why people do what they do. And my dad is 
comes from more of a sociology background and he always talked about different theories that drive people to be together and spend time together and make friends with one another. And so I just thought that was super fascinating. Yeah, it's funny that you talk about the intersection between philosophy and psychology. So when I was getting my bachelor's in political science, I was trying to figure out what I wanted my minor to be. And initially I had declared my minor as philosophy And all it took actually was one philosophy 101 class for me to realize that that was not what I wanted to do. So, but then that pushed me into trying an FHD class and then the rest was just history. Yeah, that's great. I can, I can see why you would do that. So, so much of your work in grad school has focused on this concept of academic tracking. And even though when you've told me about your work, I realized, okay, wow. So I, I was clearly in like the academic tracking system throughout all of my education, but I had never heard that term used before. So can you sort of define what academic tracking is and tell me a little bit about the work you've done with it while you were in grad school? Yeah. So academic tracking is essentially this idea that people are sorted by their ability groups into different classrooms it can be within classrooms as well. So for instance, you often see that academic tracking begins as early as kindergarten or first grade, where people are separated into ability groups for reading. So they have higher reading groups and lower reading groups within the same classroom. Um, That's pretty common practice. And then as people get older, um, typically, this this isn't uniform across all school districts, but this is the case for a lot of people, at least here in the United States, is that they are tracked in beginning a middle school into um, honors and average classes and even possibly remedial classes. And this begins typically like fifth or sixth grade. And we see that these effects carry over all the way into college and even further. Because even once they're not tracked anymore in a classroom, they've already set a career path that's related to like career outcomes. So students are tracked lower tend to have lower paying jobs or lower college attendance and things of that sort. Um, so it's an interesting question. Um, academic tracking essentially is just ability grouping within and across classrooms. Um, and that's typically the case with academic tracking, yeah. It sounds like academic tracking is something that probably has good intentions where it's like, you know, if you have some students who are underperforming, maybe it's beneficial to put them together so that they can get more specialized attention. And then students who are sort of higher performing can sort of be grouped together so that they, you know, don't get sort of bored or they get to do more advanced methods. But it sounds like what you're describing is that that actually has some distinct drawbacks because these students aren't really interacting with each other. Is that right? Yeah. So the idea is that school districts implement academic tracking with this idea that homogeneity and um, ability level within a classroom makes it easier for the teacher to teach because they're not trying to teach the high ability and low ability students at the same time. Um, But the reality is, is that students, there have been multiple theories over the years, like intergroup contact theory and things of that sort that suggest that interactions with people that are different from yourself have a lot of benefits. And the concern primarily is that when you have this kind of homogeneity, it's a lot of these students that are in ability groups and academic tracks are really similar in in their ethnicity, similar in their gender, similar in their socioeconomic status. I mean, maybe even the language that they speak. 
So you have a lot of homogeneity within an ability group. And the concern is that, you know, if you're spending all your time in classes with these students, you're really not being exposed to like people that are different from yourself. And so I think the real question and concerns from researchers over like the last 10 or 20 years has been, you know, if you're academic tracking students, they don't have those same social opportunities. And there have been even academic benefits that come from exposure to, to diverse peers and things of that sort. So I look at it and go, you know, it's an issue and how do we address this moving forward, essentially? Right. So, I mean, what is the answer to that? How do you, I mean, do you think academic tracking has some merits or do you think it's something that could eventually just get phased out of the school system? I think that the challenge is, is that there are some people that like academic tracking and typically the people that like academic tracking are parents of higher track students. So I think that there's some sort of social barrier to go through to eliminate academic tracking. So I think the elimination of tracking practices is probably not realistic, even though I see a lot of studies that suggest it being ideal. Mm -hmm. um, personally to me, I think that maybe it should just be restructured so that there's maybe more mobility between tracks. So that, for instance, based on what I've seen, we know that once students are tracked, their odds of moving between tracks year over year is very, very minimal. So if you're in an average class, your chances of getting into an honors class once you've been placed in that average class is very, very low. It's possible, but it's very, very low. And so I look at it and go, well, one of the possible solutions to this issue is to allow students greater opportunities to change academic tracks. So that once you're not, once you're placed in one, you have opportunities to go higher or lower based on your needs. And I think that would increase diversity across academic tracks, at least in some capacity. Right. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, you know, I know that in my experiences, I was someone who was always in the higher performing tracks when I was in, you know, even elementary school, middle school, high school. But by the time I reached high school, that really wasn't the most beneficial to me for every subject. For instance, I always really loved being in, you know, the sort of AP honors English classes, but I really struggled when it came to things like AP biology and AP chemistry. And I also didn't really have very much of a passion for those subjects. So that's a time where I think it would have been nice to have the option to just sort of deviate from my track a little bit and then get some more contact with students who were maybe at sort of a similar level where I was at in those subjects. And then, you know, who knows, maybe that sort of contact might have gotten some students more interested in the work I was doing in English or something like that. But it makes a lot of sense to me that it's important that students are interacting with peers who are different from them and that tracking might promote some barriers to that. I think there's also concerns about like the quality of education across academic tracks. So right. For instance, we know that um, teacher qualifications often vary by academic tracks. So teachers that are in higher academic tracks typically are more qualified than teachers in lower academic tracks. And we know that their teaching practices in general are more effective as well. So these students that are being tracked lower just aren't receiving the same quality of education that those students in the higher tracks are. So you have these diverging academic experiences based on whether a teacher believes you're you have the ability to be high or low. Because typically there's a couple different factors that impact whether you're tracked into like a high academic track or a low academic track. Sometimes it's a test, 
So like, for instance, I know when I was in the seventh grade, my first day of math class, I took a written test. And then at the end of the written test, they asked for my input on whether or not I wanted to be placed into a high or a low track. And they didn't explicitly call it a track, but they, they asked me if I wanted to be in an honors math class or a regular math class. Yeah. Then in addition, like parents give their input on what track they want their kids to be in at times. Um, teachers usually have a pretty heavy hand in making that decision. Um, and then grades sometimes are factored into that as well. So there's a multitude of different factors that play into how students are tracked. But in a lot of cases, you could have um, teachers bias and things like that impact whether students getting placed into a higher or low track, regardless of their academic ability. Right. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the really interesting work you've been doing with the Kyrene School District. It's really interesting to me because in grad school, not many grad students do internships like what you're doing, uh, because most of the time we're really focused on just sort of doing our research, getting papers out and, you know, really kind of perpetuating that publish or perish cycle, unfortunately. But the work you're doing is incredibly applied, which is what sort of we all in our graduate school training really kind of want to be doing. So tell me a little bit about how you got this opportunity and the work that you're doing. Yeah, so um, I've had two separate internships throughout my grad school time now. Um, I worked at Kyrene um before the pandemic and currently i'm at chandler unified school district um post pandemic so that's been my current experience um but i got both of them <laughs> in different ways so for the kyrene experience i had gotten that because the district office manager for kyrene had come and spoken in my professional development course on a panel and she said hey you know what if you're looking for experience come reach out to me and she was a former graduate of our program. And so I went over there, talked to her for a bit, um, got set up and I worked with her on a few different projects throughout the, throughout the next like six to nine months that were really good. And so I thought that was great. And then post pandemic, I was like, hey, you know what? I need to set myself up better for graduation. And how do I do that exactly? And I liked the experience I had in Kyrene by wanting more diverse experiences. I wanted to get other exposure and so my goal was, hey, I need to make contact with different people doing research at these various school districts and see if I can get an internship somewhere. And so I simply looked up all their information and started emailing people and said, hey, you know, my name's Kent Woods and I have these various experiences. I think they're applicable to what you're doing in the school district because of, you know, points A, B and C on my resume. And I had you know, three or four responses that got back to me, like Higley got back to me and a few other school districts. And then um, Chandler Unified went through and it's been, it's been superb since uh, I started in August. So you're doing data analysis for Chandler Unified School District. So what is the data that you're working with? Yeah, so I work with a variety of different things. So there's a program called Tableau and Tableau essentially is a program that's used to convey statistics to non-statistics users. So for instance, um, in Tableau, they'll often create a lot of bar and pie charts and things of that sort, and even geographical maps that are then given to principals to help assess their needs and their um, issues and problems at their school. So for instance, they might have enrollment information, different student success indicators and things of that sort. 
Um, and then in addition, um, I've been working to, I do a variety of tasks. I've done, um, essentially they give me all the student success indicators for students across the school district. And then I look at the variety of different SSIs as they call them, which includes like behavior referrals, attendance, and um, GPA as well. And so I look at those and go, hey, which of these students is most at risk for, you know, further problems or issues like failing out or things of that sort. And then I target them and then the counselor goes in and works with them. So in some ways I'm finding these students, targeting them, highlighting them and making sure that they're, you know, the top of the barrel for targeting for counselors and the counselor goes in and addresses it. So I'm doing a variety of things with that. And then in addition, um, there have been concerns that principals don't really understand how to work with Tableau. And I've been working to create like instructional videos for those principals so they have a better understanding of how to use it because they don't have statistics background. So they don't really, they may not know what they're working with and things of that sort. So I think it's really just helpful for them. That's great. This is a great example of how useful a PhD can be in a non-academic, well, it's still academic, but non sort of ivory tower academic environment. And it sounds like the work you're doing is really important. Do you know if there's any follow-up for these students um, after you flag them for potential counseling to be able to see if they improve over time? So I do know that there's a follow-up. Um, I don't follow the kid to the end of that rainbow. Yeah. So I don't know exactly where that goes at the end. Um, but I do know that they're followed up on. I, I know for a fact that there's counselors that reach out to them and try to make some sort of contact. Because for some students, it's a, it, it, you know, it could be skewed towards attendance, so they're not going to school. For other students, it could be behavior issues, which is maybe a little bit more addressable by a counselor. Mm -hmm. And for some, it's GPA, which maybe they work with a teacher. So I don't, I don't follow the student from beginning to end on that journey, but I, I'm definitely helped at the start of the process. Well, and that's incredibly important, right? Like, because to be able to assess and appropriately handle the issues a student might need to be facing, you first need to identify what the problems are and then who is, you know, the most susceptible to these issues. So I think that's incredibly fascinating. So, you know, do you think that it's important for more people who have PhDs to do work that's sort of outside of academia like this? Well, you know what? I think you need to look at one, what your career goals are, and then two, what you believe is the right fit for you. So I know that a lot of people that want to go into academia, you know, it really needs a couple different things. One, it needs excellent writing skills and the ability to be a self-starter in publishing, um, which may not be necessarily for everyone that has good research and statistics skills. Um, two, there might be a better fit for some people in a non-academic route. But one of the challenges I think with the non-academic route is that everyone in a PhD is trained for the academic route and they're not trained for those other experiences outside of academia. So for instance, like I would say in the different school districts, they don't use predictive analyses for anything that they do. Everything they do statistics wise is very, very what many statisticians would consider to be low level stats. They're more bar charts, pie charts, um, it's more about how you slice and dice the data and less about how um, it predicts future results. 
Um, so I think that more applied statistics is very different than the kind of statistics that occurs in academia. So I think that if you're someone that, you know what, you're really good at stats, but you know what, it doesn't necessarily work in your career to go down like a predictive analysis route, then that's definitely an opportunity where you can, you know, be a statistician and be a researcher, but you're not, the same expectations aren't necessarily there for being like a high level statistician, if that makes sense. Right. And I mean, I would still imagine, though, that having this sort of more advanced statistical training, it gives you a different perspective, right? So when you're looking at these analyses, even if they are mostly descriptive in nature, you know, having more statistical training in grad school enables you to have maybe a more expansive mindset about what that actually means in the context of, you know, these results or, you know, how to give the information that's most pertinent to the people who matter. Yeah, I totally agree. So one thing I'm curious about with you is what is your definition of success? Because you are such an interesting person to talk to because you really are truly so good at so many different things that you do have this freedom, I think, to be able to do sort of whatever you want. So I'm curious, what what is success to you? And how do you think that, um, you know, the goals that you're setting now for your career would be able to, you know, sort of be achieved? I think success to me means having a long-term trajectory for a career that I can use to support a family, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like to me, I think that um, there are different career paths where they're really not a path. They're kind of, a, you get pigeonholed into one position and there's really not a future, or at least there's not advancement opportunities. Mm -hmm. At least to me, long-term success is being able to be in, an, in a setting where one, I believe I can be successful with the skills I've been acquired over the years. And then two, have opportunities where, you know, if I perform highly, that I have chances to move up and also better myself and also better the people that I'm working with. So I think that those are two different keys to success for me. And then also, um, I think being successful is primarily like surrounded by, you know, hard work and, you know, giving everything you've got to be successful. And, you know, hopefully it all works at that career. and. Yeah, so personally to me, it's about more career advancement, making sure you're not pigeonholed, and then being able to support a family off of the job that you choose. Right. I mean, you and I have talked about sort of our more family-oriented personalities, and it's something that... I think is really important that people who are listening, who are in academia, are able to hear the message that this is something that grad students want is a work-life balance that we don't always see modeled for us by others who are in academia, right? I mean, there was a time where I was really unsure if I really wanted to pursue academia as a career because I wasn't sure if it was going to be conducive to me having the sort of family life that I've wanted really forever. But thankfully, you know, I've talked to some people, I am have been able to have some more malleability and, you know, what I was viewing as, you know, um, the academic life. And, you know, really, 
academia is wonderful in many ways, but there are some cultural overhauls that need to happen, particularly in the realm of work-life balance. So I think it's great that that's something that you've prioritized. Yeah, at least from my experiences, the academic track, I don't mean it in the sense of academic track, but the, the going down the tenure track route is not conducive to family life in a lot of different ways, based on my experiences and from what I've heard. Um, I just look at it and go, I don't know, like, I, I want to have a family, you know, I want to have children and things of that sort. And um, a lot of people that go down the academic route have one child or they have one kid later down their career paths. And personally to me, I, you know, that's not exactly what I'm looking for. And um, I know there's people that that's a good fit. Um, and it could be a couple different things. One, it could be the kind of workload that um, an academic track, academic tenure track route kind of requires, or it could be the kind of people that are attracted to an academic career. It could be either or, and we don't really have any answer for that. Um, so, you know, I look at and go, you know, I want to be able to have a family and support a family and things of that sort. And I have a few different concerns about going down an academic route for that. And yeah, I think those are valid. Yeah, I think they are. And I think it's great that, you know, you decided to pursue something that spoke to those values and that desire. So, you know, I don't want to, well, <laughs> I, I'm always willing to talk about your lovely wife because I am just obsessed with her, but she also is getting her PhD. So um, it's interesting that, you know, you've both sort of entered this academic area and you both have these advanced degrees, but it sounds like, at least for you, um, you've sort of decided to diverge from that path a bit bobby is definitely my better half <laughs> but no, yeah bobby is my better half too kent so <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i mean you know what i think that both of us bobby has always wanted to be a lecturer she loves to teach she she enjoys that she's good at research and she's good at statistics but she just doesn't have a desire to do that career-wise i don't think that's fulfilling to her in any way shape or form yeah so i think that she's going down a different path and you know what, I think that the non-academic route's a good fit for me. Really, I think the non-academic route, there's a lot of different possibilities for people to go down. It's really about connecting with where you think is a good fit, getting some experience before you graduate to get an idea of what it looks like over there. And then um, what kind of skills are they requiring? Because there might be skills at that job that you haven't been trained for in graduate school, and you need those experiences to be able to apply for that job. And so I think that, you know, gain some sort of internship, trying to get some sort of experience outside of academia before you graduate is super important if you want to go down a non-academic route. Right. So it sounds like the big takeaways from this are really that, you know, there's certainly no downside to getting your PhD, but if you want to pursue an, a non-academic path, that that's certainly available to you. It's just not always the, you know, so you have to go a little bit out of your way to go on that path, but that's okay. And it sounds like the training that you get while obtaining your PhD is still incredibly valuable in pursuing 
pursuing these sort of non-academic careers. And in fact, it seems like this uh, PhD training is really beneficial in a non-academic career because we're able to apply these skills that we learn and then actually bring them out to the communities that we're hoping to serve through research anyway. Yeah, I definitely agree. There's a lot of great skills you get as a researcher and also as a statistician that you can bring to the table for um, non-academic career paths. So I think that there's a ton of different skills that are super useful and even just like, um, you know, experiences with grants, you know, things of that sort going into education and they have grants over there that you work with as well. So I think that there's a lot of different skills that are applicable and experiences that are applicable from a PhD program to a non-academic route, if that's something you're interested in. So what would you say for you has been the most sort of practical thing that grad school has taught you? And you can answer that as sort of like the academic practical thing with writing or research, or even just sort of the more abstract lesson that you've learned through grad school. You know, I've, I would say I've become a much better writer throughout graduate school. Um, you know, like I said earlier, I wasn't the best student growing up because it was just more of an effort thing. And I had a lot of years of schooling that I really needed to make up. And, you know, English language arts was one of those. So I really had to grow and become a better writer throughout my time in elementary, middle, and high school. And I had to make an effort to compensate for years that were missed. And then as a graduate student, I feel like, you know, I've had a good relationship with my advisor. She gives me good feedback. And she's really allowed me to grow as a writer in a lot of different ways. So I would say, you know, my writing skills have improved significantly over the years I've been here. Well, this has been just an awesome conversation, Kent. So before we transition to sort of our deep ending questions, um, is there any final words you'd like to end on or any ways that people who might be interested in the work you're doing uh, can contact you? Yeah, so um, I think the best way to find more about my work is to connect with me on LinkedIn, probably. And you see, you can find me, Kenton Woods, on LinkedIn. And I'm more than happy to connect and share more information about what I do and my experiences. I think that um, closing thoughts that personally to me, I think that the non-academic route's a great route for people if that's really what they wanna do. I think that if you wanna go down that kind of route, you kinda need to carve your own path and find those experiences. And I would really make an effort to find those experiences as early as you can in your PhD program or at least your graduate program. And I think that that will help a lot as you prepare for graduation. So I think I think those are my final takeaways and my, my, my final thoughts or whatever. All right. I think that was wonderfully said. So let's transition to one of my favorite parts of the podcast where I'm going to ask you some, some deep cuts. We're going to get into a little bit of what your personal philosophy is. And these questions are really great because I think that they just get us to see a very... I don't know, a more philosophical side of the guest. So I am going to start by asking you, what makes you feel accomplished? You know what? I would say I feel accomplished by receiving support from like loved ones. So when they give like positive words of affirmation and things that are like more supportive, I feel accomplished. So like, you know, doing something great is awesome, obviously. 
but having like family and loved ones that are there to be supportive, I think makes it even just so much more better. And so I look at that and go, you know, I think family is important. Yeah. So my second question is, what is something that you have had to change your mind about? You know what? Something that I've changed my mind about is the pace at which you have to do things. I feel like throughout life, you get pushed to do things as fast as you possibly can. And sometimes it just doesn't work like that. And so I think that can be frustrating in a lot of ways, but, you know, I've had to grow and change and, you know, in some ways you have to accept that some things can't happen as fast as you want and you need to take more time with it and things of that sort. Right. Time is an incredible thing. It breeds creativity and further wisdom. So I think that is an excellent answer. So my final question, Kent, is what is one rule you would want everyone to follow? I would say treat everyone with respect because you know you're allowed to disagree and have discussions and arguments and things of that sort. But at the end of the day, you should just be treated everyone with respect. Even if you disagree with them on a topic, you know, it's treat everyone with love, kindness, and respect. And, you know, you'll be better off for it. They'll be better off for it. Yeah, that's the golden rule. So I just want to say thank you so much again, Kent. This was my conversation with Kent Woods. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a wonderful rest of your day. If you're interested in connecting with today's guest, you can reach Kent Woods at kbwoods at asu.edu or connect with him on LinkedIn. Connect with us and get access to all of our podcasts by visiting the sanfordschool.asu.edu slash podcast, where you will also find links to all of our social media channels. Thanks for listening.